We have two scripture passages this morning. The first is an Old Testament scripture passage, a very familiar one to most of you, and is fitting uh, to the place that we are in the Gospel of John, uh, fits the narrative of the Gospel of John, and it's Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. If you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to your, uh, your Bible to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, you can also find uh, that the scripture passage will be listed in the comment section of the uh, live stream for ease of access. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God. Smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who could speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. We're also looking at John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. The detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. 
Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Will you pray with me, Heavenly Father? Enlighten this word to us. May we see in this scripture passage, this sermon this morning, the salvation that you've provided for us in Jesus Christ and the reason why we needed it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Kangaroo Court. Uh, Maybe it's a phrase you're familiar with, a word that you're familiar with. I looked up where it came from, and nobody really knows, uh, but its first occurrence and its modern definition, how we understand it today, it was in a newspaper in Texas in the 1800s. It's a suggestion that it has something to do with the, uh, the gold rush in California and many Australians who came over to uh, participate in that, and some uh, uh, illegal court rulings that happened in those days. But if you don't know what kangaroo court means, I'm going to give you a definition. It's an unofficial court held by a group of people in order to try someone regarded, especially without good evidence, as guilty of a crime or misdemeanor. Or a mock court in which the principles of law and justice are disregarded or perverted. You know the phrase, which is the basis for the United States court system, It's innocent until proven guilty. Well, a kangaroo court, it's guilty until proven innocent. And that's what we see here with Christ, a kangaroo court happening where uh, justice is not being served. Principles of law are disregarded or perverted. But there's actually two people being put on trial in our passage this morning, Christ and Peter. One does so to redeem us, and one does so to show us why we need to be redeemed. The kangaroo court of Christ sets us free from the guilty verdict of the righteous and just courtroom of God, but the trial that Peter is put on. It's not a kangaroo court. It's a court that reveals the true nature of Peter's condition and the reason why we need salvation. Uh, Calvin 
John Calvin in his commentary says, In Jesus Christ we see that the body of the Son of God was bound, that our souls might be loosed from the cords of sin and Satan. While in Peter we see our own need of the love, grace, forgiveness, and redemption which Christ was securing for his people and going to the cross. So our theme this morning is our Savior was put on trial in our place. Our Savior was put on trial in our place. And there's two points this morning on the division of the text. Simply is between the part of the text that deals with Jesus and his trial and the part of the text that deals with Peter and his trial. So our first point is God's provision in Christ. And our second point is our predicament before Christ. And what we need to see here in this passage is Christ saving us and put ourselves in the place of Peter and say, this is why we need to be saved. So let's look at that first point, God's provision in Christ. Verse 12 of our passage this morning, following his arrest in the garden, we're told that a detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him. And then we hear about the judges in this kangaroo court, don't we? Annas and Caiaphas, verse 13 and 14. And they brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. So Annas is the Jewish establishment's version of a mafia don, the head of an extended family of ecclesiastical bureaucrats. So if any of you like The Godfather, those kinds of mafia movies, Annas is the boss behind the boss. Hendrickson says, while someone else might be the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin, Annas was the man to consult. He was the power behind the throne, the man behind the curtain, so to speak. What about Caiaphas? Well, son-in-law to Annas, and he was officially the high priest. And back in chapter 11, following the resurrection of Lazarus, if you remember that story, the, uh, the Jews and the leaders got together and they conspired because they said, look, all the people are going after Jesus. They just saw this wonderful miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And Caiaphas said, unbeknownst to him, a prophecy. It is expedient, he said, that one man should die for the people. It's better that one man die than the nation be destroyed. In Keddie's commentary, he comments on this. Little did he know that what he thought would secure the continued existence of the old order at the expense of an inconvenient religious subversive would turn out to be the very thing the substitutionary atoning death of the promised Messiah that would usher in a new order altogether. And what's he saying there? He's saying Caiaphas thought that in order for him to keep things the way they were, he liked the things the way they were. He was a favored person the way things were. He was a politically aligned person. He had lots of benefits in his position of power, and he wanted to keep things as they were. So he didn't want to upset the Roman government. He didn't want the Roman people to come down crushing upon him with armies. So he thought, you know what I'm going to do? You know what we need to do? We need to get rid of this Jesus guy. 
Because it's better for him to die than for the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, to be attacked. And really, if we look past his words to his heart, it's more like it's better for Jesus to die so that I can stay in my politically positive, powerful, convenient position. The death that was supposed to preserve the privileges of Caiaphas and the other princes and the corrupt and defunct Jewish people was actually God's provision for the redemption of the world. That's the judges. The judges in Jesus' kangaroo court. Annas and Caiaphas. They represent the corruption of the hierarchy of the Jewish people. But what about the judgment? Verse 19 through 24 of our passage. We see the judgment placed upon Jesus. Verse 19 through 21, we read, Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. One commentator says, From a suborned betrayer to a multi-phase kangaroo court that begins with an invitation to self-incrimination, hears blatantly false witnesses, and ends with a sentence from the rabble. We have a picture of institutional injustice thinly veiled in the garb of a pretended legality. Jesus' trial is a mockery. A mockery of justice. And why is the high priest questioning Jesus about his disciples and his teaching? Because he wants to trip Jesus up in his words. He wants to catch Jesus in his words. He wants to, to find a way to pin something to him. We have something like that in our day and age. Well, hopefully this has never happened to you. You've never been arrested. Um, but... If you've seen Law and Order or any other type of cop show, you'll know that when somebody's being arrested, they have their rights read to them, said to them, their Miranda rights, right? And one of the first things that's said to them is, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to remain silent. Have you ever wondered why is that a right? Why, why are the cops who are arresting someone telling them that you have the right to remain silent? Because anything you say or do can be held against you in the court. So if you don't say anything, you don't incriminate yourself. And that's what the high priest is trying to do with Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And Jesus says, why are you asking me? My ministry is a public ministry. Ask anyone 
They will tell you what I said. If Jesus' ministry happened in today's age, he would have said, why are you asking me? My ministry is a public ministry. Watch the news. Watch the TV. Watch the, uh, read the newspaper. Go on social media. Look on Facebook. Look on Twitter. Look on YouTube. It's posted everywhere. You can see what I've said. You can see what I've talked about. You don't need me to tell you personally. So humanly speaking, this is a mock trial, a mockery. It's a kangaroo court. It's a multi-phase kangaroo court that begins with an invitation to self-incrimination. Here's blatantly false witnesses. This is how it's going to progress, right? Ends with a sentence from the rabble. Crucify him, crucify him. That's humanly speaking. But in the flip side, we have the foreordained purposes of God's grace being fulfilled. We look at this and we see injustice. We see, we see that justice is not being upheld. But from God's perspective, this is how he's going to uphold justice. And offer us grace. You see that instead of turning his accusers on his disciples, Jesus dismisses Annas' question. And he draws more fire upon himself, being willing to stand by the evidence of his public ministry and not defending himself any further. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. Don't worry about my disciples. Keep the focus on me. You need to be looking at me. That's where the punishment needs to come. On me. And look what happens. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. And Christ responds, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? I read Isaiah chapter 53 this morning. And in verse 3 it says, he was despised and rejected by men. And we see a clear demonstration. We see a clear demonstration of this. In this moment of the official, of the high priest, slapping the Son of God in the face. This is the suffering servant seen in the drama of a petty official's act and slapping the Son of God because Jesus insisted upon the proper use of evidence. He said nothing wrong. Yet Christ stands his ground with holy dignity. In a lex talionis, eye for an eye world, justice means that punishment fits the crime. Justice means that if you poke someone's eye out, then you lose an eye. Justice means if you cause damages that are $40,000, that you repay those damages of $40,000 
plus whatever inconvenience that the person had while losing that, um, those damages. Yet Christ is being punished even though he's not guilty. Because he's being punished for our crimes and not his. This is why Christ does not retaliate physically, but rather sought to overcome evil with good by pointing to the claims of principled behavior. He says, if I've done anything wrong, tell me. But if I've spoken the truth, why did you strike me? This is a clear picture that the righteous will often be oppressed by the unrighteous because their consciences are pricked by our very presence. Have you ever wondered that? And we as the people of God, we're not supposed to be going out searching for persecution. Not supposed to be going out asking for it to come upon us. But we are told that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Why does Paul say that? Because as we live the life of Christ, as we pursue the life of Christ, as we are renewed and conformed to his image... Those who are in the darkness do not want to come into the light. Those who are in the darkness, who love their sin and what they do, do not want to see its wrongness. Do not want to see that what your life represents is that they deserve judgment. They deserve condemnation, eternal punishment. They want to live their lives and peace. And you're disturbing that peace. Christ warned us that a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If the world has hated me, he said, they will hate you also. So as we see the world strike the Son of God in the picture of the official, we brace ourselves for the same strike. And what does Christ tell us? He says, hold in your righteous indignation. Remember, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And turn the other cheek. See, that's what we're looking at here, right? Is that Christ waves his right to judgment upon this sinful man who slaps him in the face. Because Christ is going to the cross to offer salvation. For a man such as this. But may we not forget. That that high priest official. If he does not repent. For smacking the son of God in the face. Judgment is coming for him. And for all. Who would reject. Jesus Christ. 
and the salvation that God has provided in him. May we have the courage and strength to follow where our Lord has already gone. And may we have the unction to live under persecution of the world knowing that we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ and knowing that judgment finally and ultimately is not in our hands. It's in the hands of God. So that's God's provision of our salvation in Christ. But what about our predicament before Christ? In verse 15, we read that Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. And because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So nobody is certain for sure who this other disciple is. Some say that it was John, the beloved disciple. Some say that it was somebody else. Um, but it, it doesn't really matter. There's, there's no point really in speculating too much on who this other disciple is. But one commentator says, the main point to note is that whereas the rest of the disciples are nowhere to be seen, Peter and this unnamed disciple follow Jesus to his place of trial. That this modest boldness on Peter's part crumbled into abject failure and his threefold denial of Jesus sets his actions in the context of fulfillment of prophecy. This was to be Peter's place of trial also. So Christ is being put on trial. So is Peter. Christ has told Peter, Peter, you think that you are my most trusted and faithful. You are my most trusted and faithful friend. That you will not leave my side. Peter, you say that you will go with me to death. And when you have denied me three times before the rooster crows. He prophesied that. He told Peter this. And here we are about to see and unravel this prophecy's fulfillment. Let's look at that first denial. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. And when this happened, there was a confrontation. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I'm not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing there, warming himself. Calvin says in his commentary, Godly zeal was the motive that induced both of them to follow Christ. But Peter, who was so weak, would have found it to be far better for him to groan and pray in some dark corner than to go into the presence of men. He now undertakes with great earnestness the performance of a duty from which Christ has released him. And when he comes to the confession of faith in which he ought to have persevered even to death, his courage fails. We ought always to consider what the Lord requires from us so that those who are weak may not undertake what is not necessary. And what's Calvin saying here? Calvin is saying that Jesus did not require of Peter that Peter follow him to his place of trial. But Peter, wanting to show his godly zeal, brings it upon himself to go into the presence 
of Christ in his moment of trial. And he fails. When we place our courage in anything that is not the Lord, we crumble. We're blown away like smoke. We're led astray. We are weak, feeble in ourselves. Peter shows us this. The foolishness of his previous boasting is exposed. We are Peter in our own strength, in our own desire, in our own will. And we see in Peter's failure a mirror into our own hearts. Once again, Calvin says, Let us therefore learn not to be brave in any other than the Lord. We are not to do what, the, what God has not required or asked of us. To go beyond what he's required or asked of us so that we may fail. And we are not to put our trust, our bravery, our courage, and anything other than the Lord himself. But if you've been able to understand or get a grasp at all of Peter's personality, you will not find it surprising that he does not leave. He buckles down. He gets burned, yet he continues to play with fire. He cozies up to the warm fire in that courtyard. Caddy says, lingering in the arena of moral failure is an invitation to fall further when the next challenge comes, as it inevitably will. Oh, you fall, you stumble. But the circumstances and conditions that you placed yourself in that allowed for that falling, that stumbling, that failure, you stay there. You put yourself in those circumstances again. You're being foolish, foolhardy. You're not understanding your own human weakness and shortcomings. You're making a mistake. You are once again putting your bravery and your courage and your own power, not in the Lord. And let's look at that second denial, verse 25. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you're not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. We see the contrast in the way John frames these two trials. The resolute faithfulness of Christ, who was under true pressure. The pressure of being the one who is going to provide for us salvation and redemption. Who is innocent, but is allowing himself to be declared guilty. And Peter, Peter's buckling under only imagined pressure. You're one, of his, you're one of his disciples, are you? There's no threat that the person asking this question is saying, if you're one of his disciples, I'm going to arrest you right now. You're going to be on trial just like Jesus. There's no threat like that coming from it. It's just a question. Are, are you one of his disciples? I'm not. I'm not. Shaking in his boots. Peter displays humanity 
in their condition before Christ, helpless and without anything to stand on before the face of the righteous judge. This is what we are like apart from Christ. Standing before God. God is saying, Are you worthy to enter into my presence into these courts? Shake it in our boots. We have no excuse. We have nothing to declare. We have no good works to present. I can muster up any sort of legitimacy. He is us. And without Christ, we are as doomed as him. Let's look at this last denial. Verse 26 and 27. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. One commentator who's uh, from the UK, if you can tell by this illustration that he gives, says, in the American game of baseball, see, if he was American, he wouldn't have to say the American game of baseball. In the American game of baseball, the batter strikes out when the pitcher's ball, having been missed by the bat, passes over home plate for the third time. Three strikes, and he heads for the dugout. If Peter's conscience is his home plate, Then his last denial of Christ is his third strike. After that, we know, and he knows, that the inning is over for him. And the question is, will he get to bat again? If you look at this narrative and the Gospel of Luke, you will see a moment in which Christ makes eye contact with Peter following his third denial. And Peter runs away and weeps. Utter brokenness. All of Peter's self-reliance and boasting of being the most devoted and best of the disciples who would never leave the side of Jesus Christ and would follow him all the way to death is now sitting in a pile of ashes before him. This is his human achievement. He comes face to face with his true condition. He could not follow Jesus in his own strength. Peter said he was ready to die for Jesus. And he couldn't even live for him. But here's the key. The very death that Peter desired to save Christ from was the only death that could actually save him. He needed the atonement, which only Christ's death could accomplish before he could die to himself and live for his Savior. And we are no different. We need God's provision in Christ in order to overcome our predicament before Christ. If you want to live for Jesus, first, you have to give up. You have to surrender. You have to say, I can't cut it. 
I don't have it. I got nothing in myself. You got to strike out. And that's where Peter is right here in this moment. He's struck out. But because Peter belongs to God, he's not kept there. We're going to see further on in John's gospel, Peter's restoration. And if you read the other gospels, Jesus will tell Peter, Peter, Satan is apt to sift you like wheat. But I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Jesus does not let Peter's loss, Peter's failure, be his end. In his grace, he restores Peter and calls him to be on mission. And it's in light, it's in light of Peter's understanding of his own inability. It's in light of Peter's understanding of having been one who failed and who denied the Savior three times that Peter comes to grasp and understand the greatness, the amazingness of God's grace. It's in light of Peter's failure that Peter becomes so passionate about the provision of salvation that he receives in Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because Peter feels his need for it acutely. And may we, may we, in the midst of our own failures, in the midst of our own inability to save ourselves or someone we love. In the midst of our denials of Jesus Christ, our Lord, come to see the greatness of his grace. Come to see the reason why we needed salvation. And may that May that, surrendering to God and Jesus Christ, giving up on our own power and ability and strength and will, and surrendering to him be the beginning of dying to self and living for Jesus Christ. You see, the kangaroo court of Christ sets us free from the guilty verdict we deserve in the righteous and just courtroom of God. Jesus is put on trial in this passage. Peter's put on trial. Jesus' trial is for our salvation. Peter's trial is to show us why we need to be saved. Our Savior was put on trial in our place. May you know that that Savior has redeemed you, saved you, not because you deserved it, but precisely because you don't deserve it. And that's what makes grace so wonderful. And that's what gives us the power to live a life of gratitude.
to our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word of your provision in Christ and our predicament before Christ. We thank you that this passage shows us how great a Savior we have and how much we are in need of salvation. May we surrender to Jesus Christ that we may die to ourselves and live for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.